the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now, here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Today's guest is Mark Willis. Mark is a man on a mission to help you think differently about your money, your economy, and your future. After graduating with a six figures of student loan debt and discovering a way to turn his debt into real wealth as he watched everybody lose their retirement savings and home equity in 2008, he knew that he needed to find a more predictable way to meet his financial objectives and those of his clients. Mark is a certified financial planner, a three-time number one best-selling author, and the owner of the Lake Growth Financial Services, a financial firm in Chicago, Illinois, and the co-host of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Over the years, he has helped hundreds of his clients take back control of their financial future and build their businesses with proven, tax-efficient financial solutions unknown to most financial gurus. He's become known as the Not Your Average Financial Planner. Mark, welcome to the show. Paul, thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is great. So uh, we, we did have a little talk before, kind of pre-show, and you know, I want to hear a little bit more about life in Chicago and your journey to, you know, where you came from to, you know, going through writing the books and congrats on the books. Tell us a little about yourself and your journey. Well, you know, I've uh, had the great privilege over the last few years of working with clients all around the country in all 50 states. It's been incredible to see the resilience of people in the midst of great turbulence and volatility. A lot of folks are just um, dads, moms, and everybody in between just trying to make it work. You know, a lot of them are real estate investors. A lot of them are business owners um, and just folks with the W-2. But they all seem to have one thing in common, which is uh, they want more agency. They want more control. They want more certainty. They feel like life has sort of just been handed to them. And uh, they want to be able to take take it by the reins and, and move upstream in their financial life instead of just being a tennis ball floating down life's gutter. So that's that's been sort of my my mantra for myself. I want that same certainty uh, and predictability in my own financial life and uh, that of my clients. Uh, so that's my my goal, my dream, my estimation. And we've been doing it now for a little over a decade. And it's been a, a lot of fun the whole time. Oh, very cool. And one of the things I want to point out to the audience, we talk about the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner. I spent a lot of time in technology, in banking. That CFP, from what I remember talking to colleagues, is a very tough designation to get. And I don't think people realize what a challenge it is. And congrats on having your CFP. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what the CFP is and why that it's such an important designation when looking for a financial advisor. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a bear. That's for sure. I mean, uh, you put yourself, you beat your head against any wall long enough, maybe eventually you'll break through it. Uh, so it took me a good chunk of years to get through the courses. And there's a number of different courses. But what I love about it is it puts me um, through a process. And then it, it assures anyone who works with me that they will be handled in a specific way. You know, it's a lot like the U USDA organic food label seal that you might see at the grocery store, you know, if you're getting that label on your food, that you've got a specific kind of food process that it's gone through, that there weren't, you know, whatever pesticides or whatever added to it, 
similar with CFPs, you know you're getting a certain something, a certain quality control, whatever, uh, and specifically that that person has met the rigorous training requirements and certifications and ongoing education. Uh, and maybe most importantly, that they're going to have to work in your best interest rather than somebody else's best interest. Uh, so now there's still a lot of, I think it still comes down to trust. I don't care what letters are after your name. I really don't care. Um, I want to be able to trust you before I do business with you. And I would expect, you know, that would be true with the doctor. It would be true with your handyman. Um, you you want to make sure that this person is someone that you connect with and that does have your best interest at heart. Uh, but at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, do you have a connection with this person and are they, um, are they transparent with you on their fees? Do they tell you and explain things to you? Are they trying to uh, retire before you can? That would be an interesting question, you know, and uh, one of my favorite questions that uh, I like to ask my uh, clients to ask their other investment guys and gals is, what do you have in your portfolio? May I see your portfolio? If, if they're going to see your money, you might as well see theirs, right? So it's, it hopefully is an open book. And we try to do that with our firm at Lake Growth Financial Services. Oh, that's very cool. I, I, it's a very interesting aspect. I got more out of that question than I anticipated. Um, you know, talking about working, you know, asking those pertinent questions. Do, do you find anecdotally when you talk to your, your clients that, have they asked those questions and how many financial planners are willing to, you know, show them the portfolio, show them what they're invested in? I I'm curious if you've heard any, any anecdotal, it's not a perfect science here, but just have you had any feedback of people that have asked that question? Do they, well, it's do very, they get those answers? Yeah. There's a lot of awkwardness when, when the client asks the advisor to flip the script a little bit. Uh, and I think that's very telling, you know, you should ask the chef if he eats his own food, I, I assume that he or she would, right? Uh, so, you know, what's really troubling to me is that out of the last uh, year, uh, over the last year, 17 out of 18 uh, major investment advisor firms, out of the big ones, the big 18, only 17 of them underperformed the market and only one of them overperformed the market. And that's true now for the last 10 years or so. We've had a regular recurrence where the vast majority of money managers underperform the index, the stock market index like the S&P 500. And first of all, that's terrifying that uh, we're paying these big fees to investment firms only to see them underperform what we could get on an index fund. But what else is sort of troubling to me is even if we got that one out of 18, we got the special guy, the hot hands, you know, um, the investment advisor, she was the best one out of the group last year, let's say. Next year, there's no guarantee that she'll be the best one again next year. So we shuffle the deck every single year. Who's going to be the, the one or two out of 18 of the major firms uh, that will outperform the particular market? And yet they always get to take their fee. That's interesting. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, what is the root cause of them underperforming? Do you think? Is it lack of research? Is it lack of timing? Is it market corrections and market, you know, uh, volatility? What is it? Maybe in a nutshell, what, why do you think they're underperforming? There's a lot here, but I would just say one, nobody knows the future. Niels Bohr said it best. He says, prediction is very difficult, especially when it involves the future. And, you know, it, it, we could boil it down. We could get very specific and we could talk about hubris and we could talk about 
um, people getting, um, you know, too enveloped into a certain industry uh, and not being able to clearly calculate externalities like pandemics or wars or inflation, but it comes down to just not knowing the future. And that's the problem. You know, we're, we're all supposed to be, we're just moms and dads trying to live our lives, you know, trying to take the kids to school, get them back home alive. And, and also somehow we're supposed to be investment gurus. I just don't, you know, when did that start? Uh, when did, when was it like codified into the U S constitution that we also had to be, you know, financial professionals? So what do we do? We end up just sort of handing it to this person at XYZ financial and saying, you be my guru. I'll see you in 40 years. And that guru will tell them, oh yeah, I'll get you 8% on average, 8%. The market's always done 10%. So let's just conservatively say 8%. And you know, I, I get that, you know, we're trying to show them an average, but what really gets me, what really troubles me is that there is no such thing as an average. Let me give you a case in point here, Paul. This is, this floored me when I saw this. Um, let's say that you invest your money with ABC financial down the street. You got 10 grand in your pocket. So you walk in and you hand them 10 grand and they double your money that year, hundred percent rate of return. So your 10 grand went up to 20,000 bucks. So now it's the start of year two and you're feeling great. You love this firm. They're doing all the right things for you. So you keep your 20 grand with them. And what happens? They lose half your money, 20,000 kachunk down to $10,000 in one year. So now we've gone from 10,000 up to 20,000 and then we lose 50% and back down to 10,000 again. Do you feel any wealthier after these two years? Yeah, absolutely not. No. Okay. But let's do the math on that. You went up 100%, you lost 50%, divide by two. What was your average rate of return? Well, it was 25%. And the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, and all of the regulatory bodies allow that financial firm to advertise that they got you and their clients a 25% average rate of return over the last two years. Now tell me, how was that legal? How was that beneficial? And why did they get paid a fee? They got fees off that money. Because So in the real world, you would have had less than 10,000 at the end of that, right? So my problem is averages mean nothing. And yet, this is how we're all sort of lulled into a specific oh, uh, sense of security that we're going to make it. Oh, he showed, she showed me, he showed me this nice chart that shows an average return of 8%. But the real return for the real investor, now this is going to blow your mind, blew my mind, but I'm a nerd. Maybe it won't blow everybody's mm -hmm. mind. I'm, I'm a big fat nerd. So I get that. But the real return, this is the real return, not the average return, but the actual compound annual growth rate of equity fund investors, people who are all in on the stock market was just a little over 3% for the last 30 years, 30 years. And that's according to Downbar Research, which they're a third party. They don't have a dog in this fight. They're not, you know, they're just doing the research. And this is after fees, the real return of actual investors was about 3.2% over a 30 year period. Wow. Now that's devastating. If you thought you were gonna get eight and everyone was showing you those rosy projections. So anyway, that's, that's why I'm, not your average financial planner, because yeah. I don't want that in, yeah. in my uh, in my portfolio. And that's my next question, right? So, you know, why are you, you referred to as the not, you know, as not your average financial planner? And to kind of add to that, what are these other alternative investments that you believe 
you know, people should be focused on, um, you know, to, to, to get, you know, that are not equities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's certainly a lot of, um, there's certainly a lot of things that you can put your money into. There's real estate, there's stocks, there's equities, bonds, trading options, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, derivatives, all sorts of things that could keep you interested for years. And then you can wrap them in things like Roth IRAs, 401ks, whatever. Um, the question is, first and foremost, what do you want that money to do for you? And for a lot of us, we need the money working for our future income. And ultimately, we need some money in our pockets that we can spend on for our kids and, and uh, for the car that breaks down and the college degrees and all that stuff. But for some of our money, especially like our 401k cash and our IRA money, Generally speaking, that's money that's set aside for a future retirement income. When I was talking about those average returns, we're usually advertised a certain average return for the purposes of preparing for our retirement. So there's two things that I um, want to just quickly say, and then I'll try to get to your question there, Paul, as quick as I can. One, averages mean nothing. We've already established that. Two, the Wall Street casino is a a very inefficient way to spend down our money. So here's a question, another pop quiz, and sorry for this. I'll, I'll try to help you chime in if we need, but let's say you got a million bucks, million bucks in your 401k mm -hmm. and you're 65 years young and you're ready to retire. You got a million bucks in there. Feeling like a 401k millionaire, right? Yep. What is the safe amount of money that you could withdraw from that million dollars this year? You're 65 years old. How much is the safe amount of money that you feel like? And again, this is going to be subjective, but uh, if it were you and you're 65, you don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know what the market's going to do. What's the safe amount? What are you going to pull out for groceries, grandkids? Yeah, geez. You know, it, I want to say it was this 4% rule. Um, some people have said to be more conservative and go 3%. You'll have other people that will say 5 6%. Um, you know, I, I'm going to go with 4%. I mean, that's kind of what the the average, I think, uh, financial advisors will, will say, right, is, is 4%. So I'll stick with that as my final answer. There you go. That's a great answer. And that's backed by research. The, the good news is that's backed by research. The bad news is that's research that came out in the late 90s before we had a dramatic lowering of our interest rates for the last 15 years. So a lot of the bonds have really kind of suffered on the 4% rule. And the equities actually has also really dropped too. Now you've you're answering as well as anybody could have. I, I really appreciate that answer. That's awesome. Um, it's It's been shown by Wade Fow, Dr. Wade Fow and Dr. Dave Blanchett, who are both retirement research economists, that the 4% rule in today's climate gets us about a 50% chance of success, 50-50. So that's dramatically unacceptable for most of my clients anyway. They want a higher rate of success than 50-50 odds, you know, of flipping a coin. And you're right, the, the maybe the more recent research is saying closer to 2.8 to 3%. So let's round it to three. Heck, one, you know, let's just keep it at three for now. So on our million dollars, we got our million bucks. We're going to live on 30,000 bucks a year. Hmm. Wow, what a lifestyle. Right. Yeah. And oh, by the way, that's a taxable 30 grand. So we got to pay some taxes on that money to the state, to the feds. So we might be walking with, what do you want to call it? 24,000 bucks after tax. Mm -hmm. That's two grand a month. 
Youch. So what is a more efficient way to do this thing called retirement planning, right? Where we have a, a real sense that we can actually save for that future nut, whatever we need to save. And we need it in an asset that's more efficient than Wall Street. Because, you know, I just got off the phone with somebody. This, like right before this call, met a client. She still has a lot of money in the market. She set up some accounts with me too, but she has a lot of money in the market. She just sold her business um, and she's 67. And she retired. She was forced into it actually for a lot of reasons, um, for health and other reasons. But she retired this year. And what, how's the market doing this year? Well, as we're recording this, it's, you know, it's been a terrible year in the mm -hmm. markets. So, you know, if you had your million and at the beginning of the year, you might only have 750 right now. And then you take money out for groceries. That's, that's like double pain as you enter your first year of retirement. So this is what, what we call kind of the, the mountain of retirement. We've been climbing up this mountain. We've been getting to the summit. We've reached the summit. We found our way up there. And then an earthquake hits right as we hit the summit. And we start to tumble down very quickly. Uh, this is the fancy word here is the sequence of your returns is a risk that many people and many financial advisors don't really bring up. That's interesting. I, I think, is that what you refer to as the, what does Mount Everest have to do with, reti with retirement? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting because I, I think that, you know, given the fact that, you know, we have all this volatility and all these things and all these, especially things out of our control, right? We want to be able to do things that are in our control. So one of the questions was, how do you grow your retirement savings on these, on these market swings, right? Without mm -hmm. losing any money in the down years, like how, yeah. how, how does one accomplish that? That is, um, that would be a magical pill if you could swallow it because yeah, if you could just swing the upside of the market without the down years pulling you down, that would be an incredible, um, solve to the major like issues that a lot of us face. Like this client I just got off the phone with, you know, if she had just had the money somewhere where it would not crash or go down, she would have been safe. Right. Um, so again, where you put your money makes it do different things. That's pretty basic financial info right there. No, no uh, light bulbs over our head for that, but it's, it's not commonly known that you can own assets besides stocks, bonds, and mutual funds and index funds and ETFs in your IRAs and 401ks. A lot of folks don't realize that, especially when you leave your day job, you can roll that old 401k money into an IRA and now you've got a lot more options. And let me tell you about one that's really kind of captured my attention lately. That's uh, a fixed index annuity. And out of all things in the financial universe, being a Dave Ramsey fan myself, I know that you've got some background with Mr. Yeah, Ramsey. yeah. I never that's thought the, I'd be talking about annuities. Yeah, that's the yeah. A word, right? That's the like, A word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh it's like it's like um it, it belongs right there next to like uh you know the the whole life insurance and it belongs right there next to all the other stuff that he hates on his radio show and I I would have agreed with him on ninety plus percent of annuities they're not my favorite either, but this is so dramatically different, categorically different. I got a shot it from the rooftops. Uh, so I'll explain what it is, how it works. You can own these any way you want, whether it's an IRA or just, you know, in a non-qualified account, cash account. And when you put money into them, they're, again, they're a guaranteed contract. So rather than them being a stock account where the money goes up and down, they're guaranteed on a fixed rate to give you a certain increase in your wealth every single year. 
or you can choose to put that money into an index. So this just means that it watches the index. Let's say it's the S&P 500. And that index is watched all year long. And we stay out of the drama. You, have, you don't get hit up and down all year long with market returns. You're just watching the index from the start of the year to the end of the year. And if the market goes up, you get to participate on the upswings of the market. So if the S&P goes up 10%, you might get 7%. But if the index drops 10% or 50%, then you're protected at zero. And so in this way, we never experience a downturn due to a market correction. So if the market goes up, you get most of the upside, not all of it. But if the market goes down, you're protected from ever losing money due to the market's correction. Now, to me, that solves a lot of heartache and a lot of drama, um, both when I'm climbing Mount Everest. But what really gets interesting is when I'm coming back down Mount Everest. Now, you know, to your question about Mount Everest, I was reading in a uh, National Geographic article that nine out of 10 deaths are coming down Mount Everest, which is kind of surprising to me, man. I don't know about you, but uh, I would have thought, no, it's harder to climb. But no, actually, the deaths are the ones when they're coming back down. Have you ever climbed a mountain? Not myself. Um, not, not, no, not, no. Yeah, I'm going to say well, no. Well, <laughs> most, most of our mountains here in Chicago are like speed bumps, basically. And that's right. all we got around here. So, but my wife and I traveled to Japan. We climbed Mount Fuji and that was, that was the biggest mountain I'd ever tried. There's certainly bigger ones out there in Colorado. We've done a little small hikes, but from bottom to top, we did Fuji. And that was a lot of, you know, strenuous work um, going up. But literally coming down, Paul, I thought, Several times I thought to myself, okay, I'm, I'm about to die right here on this mountain. I'm about to fall and I'm about to not make it down. And it was surprising. And it was sort of like the best thing I can describe is it's sort of like you have to learn how to change the muscles and, in, in your body and in your mind to go back down this thing that you just summited. Uh, and that's true with retirement. When you're as a CFP, I've kind of seen this now uh, with hundreds of clients. You climbing the mountain is just piling money up. It's sort of easier to do. And there's less drama because you don't have to live on that 401k that just got hit up by, you know, by, by the stock market yesterday. But when you're coming down that mountain, it's a whole different ball game and you're using all sorts of different emotions and feelings. And you gotta, you gotta think about things a little bit different because you only got this nut here that you got to live on for the rest of your life. And who knows if it's going to last that long, not to mention your investment advisor is being paid a fee for the balance that you have left in that IRA. So he or she is being paid less and less as you're spending that money down. So do you think he's going to be really motivated to call you back, you know, or is he going to be chasing the next hot new IRA contributor who's 32 years old and packing money away? Interesting. No. So yeah. it's coming down that mountain. That's really the trouble. That's interesting. And I think this ties to, you know, some of the other questions we talked about. So th this type of product would ensure that you wouldn't run out of money you wouldn't run out of income. You get paid every day, no matter what. Um, it generates that lifetime income. So that product on its own, are there any other products that, that you typically use with your clients that um, that you could tell us about? I know you mentioned before real estate and some others. Maybe you could give us some other ideas around besides the annuity product. What other products or businesses do you typically engage with with your customers? Yeah. Well, the, the key is, again, just what is it that you want your money doing for you? And so if we're going to maximize our income in retirement, 
there's only a few things that could really do it efficiently. Uh, I'm weird when it comes to your finances. So I just, I, I just don't see the stock market as being an efficient maximization of my income. If I can only take three to 4% of my money out, and even that's not guaranteed. So I want something that's got more solvency. I've got, I, I want something that's got more certainty. And so real estate has a big part to play. It's as, it's a strategy that's as old as the pyramids. Uh, there's very modern ways to do real estate investing, which includes Airbnbs, short-term rentals. As the market is turning over, you might look at um, rentals that have, oh, more utilitarian neighborhoods, more you know working class neighborhoods, that sort of thing, rather than the luxury high-end Airbnbs that we've all enjoyed lately. Uh, depends on the neighborhood, depends on your market, but that's sort of what I'm starting to see my clients um, experience is a trend toward that value type uh, you know, real estate. Uh, and, you know, honestly, the, the, the rest of what you can do with your money has very little in the way of efficiency for income. There's real estate, there's dividend paying stock, there's social security, and there's annuities. There's really not a whole lot else in terms of maximizing your income. Again, if our goal is to maximize income, if our goal has goal is going other directions, we need to look at other products and other solutions. But if we want to maximize our income, then yeah, annuities, real estate, dividend paying stocks, and social security. Social security, by the way, if Dave Ramsey hates annuities that much, he can send me his social security check because that's the best annuity ever devised by mankind, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, I'll tell you a very quick story. Um, I was in a museum. We were talking before we hit record about museums in Chicago. There's a really cool one, uh, again, for the nerds in the room, um, right off of University of Chicago's campus. It's called the Oriental Institute. And in this little tiny museum, it's probably no bigger than one of our houses, right? It's not very big. Um, you go in there and there's all these mummies and cool like clay tablets from a long time ago. But you walk down the hall and there's this long parchment paper, probably 15 feet long with this old you know, manuscript. And you look on the placard underneath the, the parchment and it's an annuity contract from 325 BC. And for me, I'm like, man, if annuities are that bad, how have they lasted that long, right? Uh, and so I had to do my own due diligence and kind of get over my own bias toward annuities um, and realize that not all of them are created the same. So I've kind of now come to the conclusion as a CFP that annuities are like the best rental property you could ever own because it's a payment that never stops as you go into retirement, guaranteed by the insurance company. You're never gonna be like chasing your renter for, for, for a rent check. There's no property taxes on your annuity. There's no toilets to fix, that sort of thing. Uh, so it gives you a maximized income. And you can usually pull, depending on your age, somewhere between 5 and 8% of your money out of the annuity each year into your retirement guaranteed. So 4% non-guaranteed from stock market or 5 to 8% guaranteed by the annuity company. I'll take my chances with um, you know the annuity. That's very interesting. And it's kind of sparked two questions. Um, one is you mentioned Social Security. I'd love to hear your opinion on Social Security. As uh, you hear a lot of people saying it's not going to be there when it's when I when it's time for me. You hear all these different things about Social Security and money's going to run out, et cetera. So I'd love to hear your outlook on that. And then the second part is when we talk about the annuities, you mentioned the index annuity earlier on. How does one go about finding that needle in the haystack when it comes to annuity, because annuities do have a 
to some degree have had a bad reputation with high fees up front and they're front loaded and you're hear all these different things, but I, I'd love to hear your answers to kind of both those questions, you mm-hmm. know, you know, so outlook on social security and finding the right needle in the haystack, you know, annuity. That's great. Yeah. And I, I realized that I could be, um, uh, literally, cru- well, not literally, but I could be metaphorically crucified by most of the financial pundits and gurus out there on the web. So, uh, I know I'm shouting against the wind here, but that's okay. Uh, math seems to be on my side here. Uh, and until someone proves me wrong, I'm, I'm willing to shout this again from the rooftops. So, um, again, if you hate annuities, please, I will give you my address and you can send me your social security check because that is the longest standing annuity, um, that this country has ever seen. And it has the lowest costs and fees. Uh, administrative costs are, are like 0.01% on the Social Security check that you receive. So I'm a big fan of Social Security. And I am actually sort of bullish on it continuing. I've got 65 million reasons why I think you will still get your Social Security check, no matter how old you are. Uh, and those 65 million reasons are the baby boomers that will vote to make sure that that Social Security stays where it is. Now, do I have any assurance that the value of the dollar will be there? <laughs> no, I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need make we need to make sure that there is um, solid protection for cost of living adjustments and inflation. We've seen that, but this is an inflation adjusted annuity. Social Security just went up. What was it, eight percent this year? That's incredible. So what will the value of the dollar be? I don't have an answer for that, but I can tell you that. Uh, in fact, there's there's even congressional record saying that congressmen are going to continue to print those checks no matter what happens, um, because it's hard coded right into the you know the, um, the the law, but also because there are 65 million you know recipients of of uh, these social security checks that won't want to vote those things away. So that's my guess. The other mm-hmm. thing I know about social security is I'm going to be wrong about something. That's for sure. All right. So on to yeah. the other part of your question: How do you find these things? Um, Annuities, you're right. There are really two big questions. Um, when do you want the money and what do you want it to do before you get it? So with the, when it comes to annuities, when do you want the money and what do you want to do with it before you get it? So the first one, when do you want it? You can get a immediate annuity. So you could take your million bucks, dump it into a immediate annuity, and they will pay you the largest most efficient income off of that for the rest of your life guaranteed could be as much as 80 grand or even more in today's interest rate environment. It could be even more than that. 90 grand. That's a lot of money depending on your age and so forth. So check with, you know, your current rates and all that. That's a lot more than 30 grand off the 401k money that we would have had otherwise. Right. Hmm. Or we could put that money into a deferred annuity. So it's either immediate or deferred. And if you roll it into, let's say you're 44 years old and you want to just roll that money from your old 401k, you had an old job that now it's just languishing in the stock market, you could roll that money into an IRA holding a deferred annuity. And that deferred annuity just sort of sits there and grows and cooks and does what it does. And it just kind of helps you climb up mountain retirement until you're ready to take it at age 55 or 60 or 65 or whatever age you're ready to retire. And so that's a deferred annuity. Now, again, there are, um, while you're waiting, the annuity can do any number of things. It can grow at a fixed guaranteed rate. That's, that's looking better and better right now as interest rates have risen. You know, these guaranteed rates are in the fives and six percents. So nothing crazy, but it's never going to be negative. I like that. 
Then you can look at uh, indexed annuities, which is what we've talked about already a little bit, Paul, where you get most of the upside and no downside. Uh, and then there's variable annuities that basically are just in the stock market, but have a income in retirement that you can pull that's guaranteed. So variable annuities are the kind that I agree with Dave Ramsey on. They are fee ridden. They can be as much as three or 4% of your, of your account value in fees every year. That's, that's 400% more than what your typical asset center management fee might be. So that can just destroy, can eviscerate the account value of your annuity. If you've got a variable annuity, please call me right away. We can figure out some ways to help you with that. Um, a fixed index annuity, though, has n often can have no fees. Not always, but they can often have, I'm talking no fees. If you put a million dollars into an investment account and you put a million dollars into a fixed index annuity with no fees, the investment account has a fee, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. They're not doing it for charity, yeah. So, in fact, the Department of Labor says that if you keep a 1% fee on your account value, keep it there for 35 years, the time that you might go through your retirement, 27% of your money gets gobbled up by fees in the stock market. If you have a 1% fee on that, which is pretty typical, most you know IRAs have a 1.5% fee if you wrap in everything from 12B1 fees to you know, the um, advisor fees, AUM fees, and, and so forth, transaction costs. I just said that a fixed index annuity can have no fees on them. Uh, so you have a million bucks at the end of the year or more if the market is up, if the index is positive. Uh, so I have yet to see any evidence that fixed index annuities are front-loaded or riddled with fees. The only way you could lose money with a fixed index annuity is if you get into it and then you surrender it within the first few years. And surrender is just a fancy word of, for saying, get out of the annuity and go back to the stock market, which I've never had anybody do that. Uh, not a, one of my clients has ever done that. So it's possible to lose money, but it's only if you actively choose to cash out, walk away from the annuity before the first, say 10 years. You don't wanna get into an annuity with the intention to just jump right back out again it's meant to be a lifelong product. It's meant to be a long, at least a long-term product, if not lifelong. Uh, and in that case, there would be no fees or at least very minimal, depending on which annuity you choose. No, that's very cool. And one of the things that comes to mind is we always tell the listeners, you know, do your own research and, and whatever you hear on this podcast, we encourage people to contact the guests, do your own research, contact people, beyond the guest, right? Like do whatever you need to do to have that thorough understanding of this. And I, I and in full transparency, the whole annuity conversation is relatively new to me. The, I've heard different things. I know from a personally, from a family member perspective, um, I think they had one of those, they had a variable annuity. Um, and, and that kind of led to the question of you had mentioned, well, call me if there's a, how do you get out of that mess? So you're mm -hmm. in a bad annuity. Right. And, and, and how does one carefully get out of that without losing their shirt and getting into an investment that makes sense for them? And maybe sometimes it's, uh, it is what it is, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So, you know, I come to you, I got this, I got all my eggs in one basket. I just bought three years ago, this variable annuity. Help me go. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's gonna, it's, it's not going to be fun no matter what we do. 
You know, it's like we, we're stuck in the tar sands and now we got to find a way to get out. It's going to hurt. Um, you can stay where you are with that money. That's one option. Most of the time, variable annuities have at least some positives to them. You might not have any uh, fun watching your account value drop due to fees or market volatility, but there's still a guaranteed income that we can look forward to in that variable annuity. That is that is one of the mainstays of almost every annuity that I can think of is there is a lifetime guarantee that you will never run out of money no matter how long you live. And I cannot find any, I'm still looking, but I can't find any mutual funds that let you do that. So even Very a variable annuity is cool in that regard. Now, I'm not a fan of variable annuities because there's no guarantee that we're going to be able to see any account value there or leave anything to our kids or whatever. So I don't like that about variable annuities, but at least we got that guaranteed income. And how many people would you know chew off their arm to have some guaranteed income this year if they're needing to retire right now, right? So I, I think partly it's just a matter of keeping in context, what are we trying to do? And I don't like to, I mean, sure, it would be a, it would be a compensation heyday for you to just pull people out of annuities and just put them into new ones. But I don't believe in that. I don't think that's the fair thing to do. It's not the fiduciary thing to do. You want to look and see, does this person benefit from making a move? If they don't, you better leave them where they are. If they do, and how do you find out what does the word benefit even mean? Well, it comes down to a listening conversation. And generally what we would do at our firm is we'd listen, have several conversations of just Q&A learning about you, understanding you, figuring out your goals, your time horizon, and then deciding, hey, we're going to leave this thing alone because you you actually have a really good product here, whatever it might be. Or we'd say, hey, you know, there's a surrender charge here and it's 7% and do you want to do this? And hey, maybe we can actually do a uh, transfer to this other annuity that will bonus you 7% because a lot of these annuities offer a bonus. Okay, so you could transfer your annuity, lose 7% at XYZ insurance and get a bonus for 7% at ABC insurance. And that might be a way to kind of overcome the problem of that, you know, penalty, you might say, to get out of that old, you know, dusty variable annuity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you kind of hit it spot on is, and, and I don't think people realize that is you, you go to an expert, you have this issue. You need somebody who's knowledgeable that's going to take a look at all the facts, kind of look at all the outcomes or potential outcomes and make the best decision based on where you're at, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't do that, but it's, I'm glad that people like yourself are out there that will do that, right? So maybe to your point, getting out of that annuity, even though you would have not recommended it to that person to begin with, maybe that is a better alternative than to liquidation and putting it in another annuity just for the sake mm -hmm. of doing it, right? So right. I, I like where you're, and that comes from your CFP background and doing what's you know right for your client, your customer. Um, one of the questions that, I, one of the questions I have for you, is, and I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. We've talked about rate of return. Uh, you talked about income. Like, can you explain the difference between rate of return versus rate of income? Yeah, that's, well, this is actually somewhat a, um, a continuation of the theme here because, again, I love to maximize income. And ultimately, what are we doing in our day jobs? We're trading time for money. We're trading um, money for groceries. But we also need to save up something so that we can live off that money in the future. You think about it like if you went two years and didn't have an income with your day job, 
Paul, that would probably be an impactful like situation, right? That would probably have a negative <laughs> impact, right? Two years without income. Now, now like multiply that by 25 years or 30 years, that's retirement. Mm. <laughs> so, and we're saving right now, at least the last research or the last study I heard was we're saving like 2.3% of our money right now as a country, 2.3%. That is unacceptable. We can't mm. prepare for 25 years or more of, you know, of, of no income off of a 2% savings rate right now. That's, that's crazy. Um, in the pandemic, we were saving 37%. Okay. Our grandparents in 1940 were saving 30%. China, uh, on average, is saving about 30% of their income right now, which I think is just, it's just kind of an interesting, you know, comparison. So could we prepare for more retirement? What can we do to prepare for that day when income will stop? Because expenses never stop. Our income will stop. Some, whether we're forced to retire or, or we go into it willingly, the expenses will never stop. So the question is not so much rate of return. I'm good with rate of return. That's fine. I love getting those big numbers on my account statements, but I would much rather a more efficient rate of income. That's my ROI, not return on investment. It's rate of income. I want to see a, a nice, efficient rate of income. So like I said, you could either take 30,000 bucks from your 401k, which is the best research out there these days is about 3% of your you know, equity-based portfolio, or you could take five to 8% of your money out of an annuity that's somewhere between 50 and 80,000 bucks a year for the same money. Or to put it another way, and then I'll hush because uh, I see our time, I've put it another way, you don't have to save as much to live on the same income. You know, if you're comfortable saving um, less money, then put it into an annuity because it'll still generate an equivalent income, right? You'd have to save a whole lot more money in the stock market to get the same income uh, from an annuity. To, and to, to wrap it up, you know, I even did the math on this. Uh, if you had a million bucks in a 401k, equity-based 401k, you'd only need about $640,000 saved in an annuity to produce the same income. That's, that's interesting. And, you know, I could talk to you for another two hours. I, I really could. I will, I will not do that to you, though, um, <laughs> about all kinds of things swimming in my head. Because one of the light bulb moments that you, that, at least for me, that you triggered is we talk, everyone, you know, at the backyard barbecues talk about the rate of return. Oh, I got this much money from my stock and, you know, it's double this and that. But I think working backwards from the rate of income is what you really need to be talking about. At least that's what it sounds like to me. And the rate of return is really kind of a mechanism to get to your rate of income, right? Yeah. It, you, and you, you can't need... spend a rate of return at the grocery store, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. And I got one last question for you. And, and this has all been great stuff. And I'll be listening back to this episode um, absolutely. I do my either, you know, my gym or run or whatever. And I always listen back. This might be one of those I listen to a couple of times. Um, how do you balance? Now, you have a successful business, uh, best-selling author, married. Um, you, you have your family. How do you balance all that, right? Like, I I need to keep learning. That That is one question. I always ask my high-test, high-powered, whatever the word I'm searching for, guests, because they manage to do things where I get tired reading about what they've done, let alone <laughs> the stuff that they do. So can you give us a little insight to how do you balance all that out uh, and still be successful at what you do? Well, I think we're all still learning, man. I think, um, what does the word balance mean? To me, my best definition of the word balance is overcorrecting the last mistake. 
you think about it like if you're on a if you're balancing on a beam, you know, you're basically all you're doing is you're just overcorrecting your last mistake. And so I feel like that's what balance is to me. It's just, you know, constantly making mistakes and then overcorrecting and then making another mistake and overcorrecting. Uh, I, so that's my short answer. And my, you know, humbly, I'm still figuring this out too. We're, we're all just trying to, you know, get through the day alive, I think sometimes and figure out which fires to let burn. Um, but I would say too, that it's, it's not so much balance. I don't think, I mean, balance is, is um, homeostasis, that, that means death, right? I don't want balance as much as I want abundance. And I'm trying to find the best ways to get to the abundance in all areas of my life, my spiritual life, my marriage life, my kids, my, you know, my personal life. And I'm, I think certain seasons of your life, it's okay to be anemic in certain areas of your life, as long as you're aware of it and you're overcorrecting your last mistake. So if you need some more friends time, if you need some better diets, if you need some more spiritual time, if you need some more marriage time, if you need more money, you know, just overcorrect your last mistake and be okay with being just a finite human being. That's the best answer I got, man. What do you, what would you say to that? I love it. Um, I think it was put, I, I think I asked my son or I don't know where it came up in conversation, but I, I might've been a little bit down on myself because you blink and, and my son's yeah. 18, he's out of the house. And uh, I think he said to me, he goes, he goes, dad, don't worry. I'm okay. You did okay. That's good. That's what right? you want to hear. And, 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 and when I look back and I could now this could go another hour, but you know, I look back at the, and it still continues the tens of thousands of hours pouring into working and balancing that. I'll never forget. I think when my son was 14, you know, he, he asked me, he just assumed he goes, dad, but you, you love working. And I thought that was interesting because I never really stopped <laughs> to think about it. And, 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 but the perception on the outside outside is I am always plugged in. And I think just like yourself owning your own business, there's not really, especially now with technology and everything, you're always kind of plugged in. It's hard to unplug. And so I think he saw that. And, and so it's interesting to me. So for me, I think the, the advice I got from a buddy of mine when my son was born was, Paul, there will be plenty of time in your life to play golf. There'll be plenty of time to do certain things and really just balancing these things out. And I, once again, I could go into a couple of situations where I had a, some wake up moments early on where I got to get my act together when it comes to this parenting thing. But I think one of the big things for me was making sure not to miss out on those key moments. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something, and now we're getting off topic with finances, but the other thing I learned early on, well, not so early, was try to have that date night set up at least once a quarter, once a month, whatever that cadence is, something that you and your yeah. significant other can look forward to, where you get that qualified babysitter to, to sit with the kids and just go. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I suggest to new, you know, to, to new parents, I always say, listen, because they're, they're struggling, they're both working they're the, the kids crying, all these different things. And I say, please, you got to schedule those date nights. I don't know what the cadence is. You have to figure that out for yourself. But so I know I didn't answer it. I answered it in a long winded way, but um, I hope I'm I love okay. it. <laughs> hey, it. It wraps into finance, I think, because, Hey, what's money for in the first place? In fact, I would just say, and I won't ramble here too long, but put a purpose statement around your money. You know, many of us might have a purpose statement for their family or for their marriage or for their business. Do you have a mission statement for your money? Um, maybe, maybe it's worth thinking about. Why do you have money in your life in the first place? 
think about it. I don't have an answer to that question for every person. I've got my own draft in my desk drawer over here, what my purpose statement with money is, but what is yours? And could it possibly interconnect with the most important people in your life, like your kids, your your spouse, that sort of thing. So good on you, Paul, for doing those uh, doing those wake up calls, man. That's good stuff. Yeah, and mutual, mutually, the same for you. And I usually go into a little bit of a recap. So one is definitely the this annuity product, right? The index annuity, right? So kind of looking at that and giving that more of a think and doing my own due diligence and research and looking at that product a bit more. Uh, may reach out, pick your brain on that. Um, the importance of the CFP certification, I, I think that um, it's not emphasized enough. I think that's something people should to take a look at and, and see why um, it is an important designation beyond this podcast. Um, the rate of, re of income, that was another light bulb moment. And, and now this last piece, which I, I had to write on my glass top desk with my expo marker and not into my, my notes, is this mission statement around what do you want your money to do? Right. Mm -hmm. What is, you know, and I think that's very interesting. So I think with that, we'll give you the last word in terms of any final thoughts, takeaways, and where can people find you? Hey, well, with you. that's great stuff and a great show. Everybody listening, make sure to spend uh, just two minutes and leave a five star review for Paul. And, and the show's uh, just been really cool. And I love the mission of the show as well, Paul. So thank you. Uh, yeah. If you guys would like to connect with me and my team, We'd be happy to at least listen and understand your goals. Maybe we can craft that financial purpose statement with money. Uh, and maybe we've got some strategies we could work on together. If so, we can help. You can reach me at kickstartwithmark.com. That's kickstartwithmark with a K.com. Very cool. Very cool. And yes, and please uh, tune in to Mark's podcast as well. Do you want to? Oh, yeah. Tell not us, your. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's called Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Not Your I Average love it. Financial Podcast. I love Can you give one or two, just a one line or two line to script? Love yeah, we just title. we help you think and live differently with your money, your economy, your future. And we help people think outside the box that they've been given. Um, the things that you were told maybe just ain't so, as the Mark Twain quote is famous for saying. Very cool. Well, well, thank you for this, Mark. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll be able to do the podcast again at some point. Um, so with that, we'll, we'll wrap and close. Um, well, Mark, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Thanks, everyone, for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul reminding you, Managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you.